When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, uh, yeah, that sucked. Um, I don't know how else to really put it. And I, I think if any podcast deserves a cold open, it's this one. Because uh, 24 to 7 against unranked Purdue, I guess now ranked Purdue, doesn't really matter. doesn't really change the fact that Iowa's season just got derailed. No pun intended. Still not over. There's a lot of time left. A lot of games that can be won by Iowa, uh, including a Big Ten title game which could change the whole dynamic of everything in the college football landscape. But, uh, Thad, like, just rewatching this game, it sucked. I mean, there's no other way to put it. That was not a fun one to go back to prep for the pod or to, to write a rewatch article. Um, said before we got started, I had it clipped down to about 37, 38 minutes of just all the plays clipped down. And... I wanted to get through it as fast as possible. Um, did have to slow down, really try to examine some things because it's one of those games like you see it live and it's just like frustration building steadily throughout the game. And you get to that last quarter, really. And it's at that point, it's just, I mean, Iowa had some chances at the end to kind of shorten the lead, but you just never felt like on either end of the ball that they were going to make whatever play necessary to really get this one back in their favor. Yeah, and there's also a thing to it, too, like when I was winning, analysis is really easy because you can overlook certain flaws and say that they're making up um, for it in other areas, right? And we've been talking about those areas that they're making it up with um, throughout the entire season. But when Iowa loses, and, and especially in the fashion that they did lose, all hot takes start flowing. Um, the spotlight gets brighter on certain positions that maybe aren't performing to a level that you should expect, especially midway through the season, um, and especially with the talent that they have on the roster. Um, you know, a lot of eyes are being pointed at the offense right now, and I think for a lot of reasons, deservedly so. Uh, there's definitely a lot of issues on there that we will address in this podcast for sure. Um, you know, when you were re-watching this game, I guess what were the main, I guess, three core areas where you're just like, Iowa just got beat, and those three areas are really significantly uh, part of the blame. Well, the first thing is just like we went into this talking about how just dead and out of life Purdue looked, and it was the exact opposite on Saturday. You know, Purdue looked like they had all the life, like they were the team riding a winning streak, and Iowa in so many instances looked lifeless. But getting back to your question, the top things, the one was just third down conversions. Purdue was unbelievable on third downs and especially from third down and long um i think they converted had it seven times on third and six or more and coming into this game there were you know an insane percentage and coming into this game i think iowa was giving up around 22 23 percent of third down and long and purdue was just unbelievably efficient and it was you know, it wasn't just one thing. It wasn't like it was just soft coverage and they would hit an out route 
Um, it wasn't just blown tackles. It was wasn't just passes. You know, they had a long run. They had some quarterback runs. Uh, it was everything. Purdue had all the right answers on third down, and it was scheme. It was players just making plays, and it was everything that Purdue wanted to do. And this Iowa defense has been so good about like forcing you three and out and flipping the field. And up until Purdue tried to just run out the clock, their shortest drive was seven plays. Seven plays. They were all seven plays or longer up until the very end of the game. So Iowa was never able to flip that field in that sense and, you know, shut them down and get a quick turnaround. And Iowa was constantly behind in that situation. The other thing was just really how Purdue played on both sides, guys just making plays. And when Purdue was on the field, like I shouldn't say, the whole game, while the game was being played, Purdue had the best player on the field no matter what. So when Purdue was on offense, David Bell was the best player on the field. When Purdue was on defense, George Karloftis was the best player. And I'm beating myself up, you know, when I think back to our analysis and not thinking about what Will McDonald did to Iowa as a defensive end for Iowa State. And then you have Karloftis, who's a, as good as anybody at defensive end in the country. And he just single-handedly wrecked so many things that Iowa wanted to do. Um, and then when it was Iowa having to pass late, they just couldn't block him. One-on-one -on -one with two guys. They triple-teamed him once. Uh, so that's those are the two big things. And then the last thing was just Purdue made Iowa one-dimensional in the sense of, they're either going to run out of a heavy formation or pass out a shotgun because Purdue took their defensive ends and just screamed them straight up the line. So Iowa was not able to run any of their play action bootleg stuff. They just said, we're going to take that away. If you want to run the ball and get a cutback lane, fine, you're going to get that. But we are going to take away your quarterback rolling out and trying to make a big play. And I think Iowa was only able to run two or three play actions the whole time. One was a sack. Uh, they had an incompletion, and then they did have uh, one completion, I think, to start maybe the third quarter. But other than that, it was just um, Purdue did everything they wanted. Yeah, and, you know, you obviously brought up George Karloftis, who was sort of the focus of Iowa's offensive line, and it didn't really matter. Um, he still got his. And then you also brought up the comparison to Will McDonald. And, yeah, they're both great pass rushers, but they're also, like, very different in how – one, Iowa tried to attack them with their pass sets and also differently in sort of how um, those two players win and try to get after the passer. And, you know, you brought up a really good uh, tweet, actually, that somebody brought like a tweeted at you sort of asking about um, that right tackle on George Karloftis matchup. Do you want to share that with us and then we can sort of like break that down? Yeah, so the question was just... Um... Wanting to hear a breakdown from the offensive line, uh, how maybe they were impacted without ints, but also uh, how the right tackle position, whether it was DeYoung or uh, Plum out there, just what Karloftis was doing um, to get by them in the running back every time and what it looked like. And then what do we expect from this offensive line for the rest of the way? Yeah, so we can talk a little bit about at least what the coaching staff was trying to tell uh, Nick DeYoung and Mason Richmond to a degree um, on how to attack a George Karloftis because 
let's just talk about the, the body of work of George Karloftis as just a, a physical player if you're scouting him, right? He's an explosive guy, but he's not really like the flexy, bendable, super quick guy um, by like a Will McDonald standards or to that degree. He's more of a, I'm going to overpower you and have active hands and sort of whip you on in just sort of a phone booth. So he's not really trying to bend the edge too much. And when he tried to do a speed rusher, bend the edge, I did think Nick DeYoung um, did pretty decently well to ride his momentum out of the pocket. Um, yeah, he got beat to the edge, but what Nick DeYoung did was just redirect that momentum and carry him out of the pocket and let him just sort of run himself out. And yeah, that kind of creates a new pocket, but it's still a clean pocket where your quarterback's not getting hit. But a lot of the game, what... Iowa's coaching staff really taught their tackles to do was set it at a 45 degree angle. So just as sort of a, um, a, a measure, a lot of the time when you're going up a really, against a really great pass rusher with a lot of athleticism, you're going to see a lot of vertical sets and like these deep, you know, drop sets and pass and pass pro where the tackle is taking those stereotypical, what you see in the NFL, those super long kick steps um, and not really protruding outwards on the snap. But what they wanted to do to sort of combat George Karloftis's bull rush ability, they didn't want him to have a head of steam, you know, coming down on a vertical set because they knew that he they were gonna if they did that, Iowa's tackles were gonna get smoked, right? Like George Karloftis is just way too strong, so they said, all right, well, we're not gonna jump set you, and a jump set just means you're literally jumping at that player, even in a pass set, sort of like almost a run block um, for the passing game. And that's usually for the quick passing game or to at least sell a play action kind of fake. But they were setting at a 45 degree set. So they were kind of in the middle of a vertical set and a jump set um, to sort of minimize the power or the power rush aspect of George Karloftis. But what happened was George Karloftis is also a great player and he's also a very, very good athlete. You know, again, not the craziest athlete I was faced, but still a good enough athlete where if you're giving him that little wiggle room to maybe make a speed rush or maybe um, threaten with some quickness. He has enough quickness in his bag to take advantage of you. And Nick DeYoung, I mean, he's a. am going to reserve my right to be a judge of him until the end of the season, I think, or at least a few more games. But he's not a super great athlete, and it really showed up in his quickness when he's not able to get that sort of that deep drop set and get a fr- in front of a player. Um without that handicap of being able to set deep, he really got whipped on the outside a lot. And there's not much you can really do out there unless you want to chip him with a tight end. But even if you chip him with a tight end, then you're limiting your passing game. And obviously, Iowa fell down pretty early in this game and needed to throw the ball. Um, It was just sort of a a fact of, you know, Nick DeYoung not being the best player and George Kaloftis being a very good player. And yeah, that honestly is what it comes down to a lot of times in college football. And I was coaching a game plan. Maybe you can criticize it and say, well, maybe we should have allowed that vertical set drop and then maybe assigned a running back to that side at all times or a tight end. But then you get in a whole conundrum of, you know, the passing game. So that's kind of what my takeaway was. And I do think it's, you know, it's fair to criticize Nick DeYoung's talent as far as just matching up with George Karloftis. But you have to sort of measure your expectations when you have that sort of matchup on the edge. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> Karloftis is going to be a better player than the majority of guys he goes against during the season and during his career. Like, he's an exceptional defensive end. 
And there were times where Iowa did then try to chip um, or did have a tight end over there and make, even if the tight end didn't chip, the tight end was trying to get an inside release and at least slow Karloftis down so he couldn't power rush or speed rush. But the problem is, as you said, who does Iowa love to throw to? The tight ends. So now if they're chipping or if they're redirecting their route, it's taking away one of Iowa's primary receiving options. Same with the running backs. I mean, Goodson and Ivory Kelly Martin are good receivers out of the backfield. They help Iowa's passing game. But they were so they had to spend so much time trying to figure out, hey, where is Karloftis? And, you know, how do I get a good chip? And it's not something Iowa does a lot. Like, Iowa doesn't want to have to chip on the end. They want their guys to be able to handle one-on-one. And the running back's job usually is to handle inside pressure. So if there's inside pressure, step up, take a blitzer, take a free rusher, whatever. And you could just tell that the Iowa players, it's not something that they practice a lot. Now, maybe they spent that week going over it, but it's not something that they want to do. And it just, it looked awkward when they did it and just was not effective. And then all those things are just multiplied by the fact of, you know, at guard, you know, it, right guard. Iowa does kind of have this revolving door right now with Justin Britt and Connor Colby. You know, they're kind of rotating those guys, playing that out. On the left side, they had been doing the same with Cody Ince and then Kyler Schott, but Ince is hurt. So you've got Schott who's coming back from a foot injury and he's having to play all those snaps. And you can just see as the game goes on, he's not there from a stamina position yet. And, you know, beyond stamina, you talked about it last week, you know, it's just hard when you're coming back from a broken foot to really get those power sets or to power, um, you know, power run game. Or there was a play where I thought Iowa had a really nice design. They fake a jet sweep. They're, they run a trap play. They're bringing shot across the field to trap the defensive tackle. And he just couldn't get there. And it was set up perfectly because Potabom was going to be on the linebacker and it was going to be Ivory Kelly Martin one-on-one with a safety for either a nice gain or a breakaway gain. And Shot just wasn't able to get there. And I have to think that's partly just stamina and, you know, getting back into full game speed. So some of the youth and injuries just really showed up. And then credit to Purdue, man, they were lights out defensively. Yeah, I mean, Purdue definitely has some athletes. But, you know, you brought up, the right guard position. I think that's one of the more interesting positions on the Iowa offensive line. Um, because let's talk about why they are using Connor Colby and Justin Britt and sort of a revolving door. And a lot of people think, Oh, well, they're just kind of battling out or at least in the early part of the season. Um, that was sort of the, um, analysis of it. Oh, they're just trying to figure out who plays the best at right guard for them in that spot. And the reality that the Iowa coaches came to is that, Connor Colby is significantly better in the run game because he's a great athlete. He has a lot of power. He can drive block. He can climb to the second level. Maybe not the best technique wise when he climbs the second level, but he's a good enough athlete to at least maybe chip a linebacker at the second level or safety, get out in space. He has that ability. With Justin Britt, he's a great pass protector, or at least not a, maybe not a great pass protector, pass protector, but he doesn't make a lot of mistakes and his positioning is pretty good. His communication is definitely um, there with just his experience, but we see the vice versa on both of those guys with Justin Britt in the run game on some of these reach blocks. He screws up the play 
by just not being able to execute a, an easy reach block that Connor Colby would clean up super easy. And, you know, Tyler Linderbaum can only do so much when they run to the left side. You know what I mean? Like Tyler Linderbaum is not helping on that on that exchange if they're running to the left side and Justin Britt's at right guard. And then vice versa, Connor Colby and pass protection. There are some times where he just looks completely lost um, and he can easily get his footwork sort of tangled and pass rushers on the inside. If they run any kind of stunts or any kind of like spin moves or uh, rip moves or swim moves, he can get in trouble. And that's where you don't want the pocket collapsing when you're you're passing the ball on the inside. We talk about all the time. The best pass rushing uh, pressure you want to generate is in the on the interior because your quarterback can't get away. And that's a lot of the time it's coming from that right guard spot. Not usually coming from Kyler shot, even though he had some moments in this game that were, you know, again, pretty ugly. And it, there was a lot, of, a lot of different areas you can point to to say that I was struggling the offensive line in this game. None, none of which are Tyler Linderbaum, obviously. But yeah, that's why they're doing it at right guard. And it's tough to sort of project that as the season goes on because they only put in Justin Britt when they need to throw the ball. And when they really want, and then when they're in a close game and want to be able to get the run game going, they have Connor Colby in there. So it's kind of this weird mesh that they haven't been able to find a good balance on and figure out how to make it work. And I think right now the hope is that Connor Colby can eventually just mature into a good pass protector because obviously Iowa wants to run the ball and, where their strength is at right guard for running the ball is Connor Colby. They just need him to mature a lot in pass protection before they can fully trust him for an entire game. And it's two guys that I think ideally this coaching staff really doesn't see as in an ideal world as their right guard. You know, Colby came in, they want him to eventually, I think, be a tackle. You talked about his athleticism, his ability to climb, um, He's got everything you want from an athletic and size standpoint to be a tackle. And I'm sure that's where they envision him down the road. And Britt really came in. Um, they wanted him for at center. You know, he's one of those, like his best attribute, as you said, is that communication, his ability to hand things off in the pass set. Um, but his strength is not necessarily getting those, you know, secondary blocks, get the first guy, get your reach block. You know, they preferred, they kind of envisioned him as the center until Linderbaum came in um, and was just obviously too good to not play center. So it's two guys that are kind of, they're filling a spot, you know, this is not on them. This is not a, okay, it's your fault that you're not, you know, ideal at this position. But as you said, it's kind of now become this dichotomy of, well, this guy's in, we're trying to tailor some of our play calls or designs on what one or two guys along the offensive line it can do. And if we see it, we know that opposing staffs, are looking at that and trying to get calls. And I was still effective with some of it. I mean, they had two drives that looked really good where they were running the ball. And I thought there were some, some of the best run lanes that they've had all season, honestly. And mm -hmm. so there were some good things from that. And there were times when they were able to get some combos and get to the second level. But there were also those times where Goodson gets the ball and there's a dude on him and he's just diving forward, trying to pick up a loss of two instead of a loss of four. Yeah, there were, there was a lot of running lanes in this game opened up by good offensive line play and good fullback play and good tight ends blocked on the edge. And 
It kind of reminded me of last season when Iowa's offensive line was clicking at times. But then the consistency aspect is what really hinders his offensive offensive line in the running game. And again, that's like 50%, 60% of Iowa's play calls. So every, if they even break down 15% of the time, we're going to notice it because in a close game like this throughout the game, you know, that, may, that leads to a second and 12. That leads to a, a third and eight. Um, that leads to an obvious passing down, um, down the road. And that's not where Iowa's offense excels. You know, they, this, I think Iowa's offensive game plan in this game was so see-through, um, just from like the, the outset. I mean, they're calling spacing on third and eight to try to pick up four yards intentionally over and over again. Um, their one big explosive pass play at the start of the game was on a slant that they were just hoping it would get seven or eight yards. And then it just kind of Keegan Johnson did his own thing. I mean, they really just want to make third and manageable a, a constant thing. But if third and manageable is your goal, you can't have the inconsistency of, you know, a guy on the backside not being able to make a reach block and then the play blows up. Like last year, when you watch the offensive line play, their issues weren't really on those weird not being able to make a reach block scenarios more often than not. It was kind of like, on the edge when they got out in space, they kind of just missed on an assignment late um, based on peripheral vision or something like that. It was the minute details that like, oh, well, I mean, there's really no way you can really re-coach that. Right now, it's not really even a coaching thing. It's more of they don't have the same kind of athletes they did last season. And that's kind of the big problem right now. Yeah, you've got, you know, two freshmen playing and starting in Richmond and Colby. You've got DeYoung, who's a sophomore. Now he's been in the program for three years, but he came in as a walk-on. It's it's a guy that's had to develop physically. So you also see that lack of strength in some of those situations. At left guard, Ince, you know, we questioned all the time early, like, why isn't he playing more? What's the rotate? What are they doing early? Well, it's clear that this is a lingering issue with an injury. And so you have who I thought was, you know, a clear-cut starter, one of the better guards in the Big Ten even, and he just hasn't been healthy and obviously shot missed a significant time, and now he's coming back and they're trying to get extended run out of him. So I'm interested to see what it looks like, uh, what Ince's injury looks like, and that, you know, what forecasting forward, how many snaps can he get? Is this going to be something that lingers all year? Is it something he'll be back, you know, after the bye, he's back? Because... They're just so inconsistent right now. And it's like one play, they look fantastic. And then one player like, yeah, you know, there's a freshman out there and he's head spinning around and he's not sure what's going on. And you might have a play that's set up and it's like, okay, this is a big play. It's a good call. We could hit something and it just doesn't work. You know, I think back to Iowa getting inside the 25 or inside the 25 and Petrus has Charlie Jones on an out to the left side. And it's there looking like it's going to be a first down, first and goal. But what happens? You know, Karloftis hits Petrus as he throws. The ball's just a little high, incomplete. And next thing you know, Iowa, I think, is, you know, turning the ball over. Um, so it just, you know, there were so many close calls. It's like, oh, if they can just get this one block here or one thing here. Um, and it's just, Something is disrupting any continuity. So the offense just looks disjointed in so many situations because they get a loss of yardage play. And now you are predictable because 
second down and 12 is a very predictable down and distance. Third down and eight is a very predictable down and distance. And they're just getting themselves into, the, into those situations too often. Yeah, and I think inserting a, a healthy Cody Gantz, and again, yeah, you said it. They haven't really become, they come out and really said it too uh, explicitly, but there's something going on with Cody Gantz as far as injuries are concerned because Cody Gantz is one of those guys that he's not going to wow you in any one area, but he does a, a very good job in all of his areas. And technique-wise, a very good player, um, a good enough athlete to, to make those reach blocks or at least get in front of some guy. Um, and you know, he is susceptible on some pass rushing moves because he's not the strongest, um, sturdiest guard in the world, but he is an absolute upgrade of over any of the guards that are playing right now. That's including Kyler shot. That's including Colby. That's including Brit. What we saw from Mintz last season was by far better than all three of those guys right now. And there's just no way he wouldn't have already been in the fold if there wasn't something going on with him as far as health is concerned. Yeah, and, and that leads to, you know, all of a sudden now, as you mentioned, I was using running backs or an extra tight end to block, and that's disrupting, A, your chances of um, getting some of those wide receivers in space and also those tight ends. You're, you're not able to threaten the safeties or linebackers, and they're able to focus on other guys because those players are having to spend so much time worrying about the defensive line. Purdue blitzed, I think, four times the entire game. So they were able to generate these pressures and all of those hits with a four-man rush. So, yeah, the passing game looked really bad, but it was four on seven the entire time. And your passing game isn't going to look very crisp when it's constantly four on seven, which is, guess what, the exact recipe that Iowa has used really most of the season to make opposing passing games look terrible. Yeah, and now that we're kind of talking about the passing game, um, this is going to be, I think, the title of this podcast, just because, man, you talk about a hot button topic. And yeah, the quarterback, quarterback position has always been a hot button tap, topic at Iowa, unless you have a C.J. Beathard, who sort of supplanted and brings that spark immediately. And Spencer Peters didn't really immediately bring that spark. And there's been times where he's given a lot, a lot of hope to Iowa fans just based on the results. But... Nobody actually looks at, you know, what kind of thrones he's actually making and what's happening. They kind of ignore that the process of how the results happen. They just kind of look at that stat line and they kind of look at the offense's passing game, kind of looking flat and lifeless and non-explosive through three quarters of play. And, you know, they kind of jump to conclusions on their own analysis of it. And with Spencer Petrus, you know, he's not a guy who's a C.J. Brethard kind of gunslinger type who's doing a lot of crazy stuff and, and making these throws off out, out of structure and off platform. So let's give your analysis so far through this season. Just like what have you been seeing from Spencer Petrus and then what, um, you know, what are some of the takes you've been seeing and how accurate are they? Well, we've talked about it, you know, a few times. I think on a lot of situations, his ball placement has been pretty good. I think his initial pre-snap read has been pretty good. You know, it's not perfect. There are things that, that he's maybe missed and go back to film. Oh, I should have saw this. That part to me, you know, he's been fine. You see him at the line of scrimmage. He's making kill calls. Um, they're doing a few different situations on giving him maybe two options on different plays. 
that part's been fine. Uh, but it's a, he's a player that we have a year and a half of evidence of, you know, it's pretty clear what his, where his weak spots are. It's pretty clear where his strengths are. His strengths are when he hits his back foot on time, he delivers a very crisp and pretty accurate ball. When he's, as you said, off platform, it doesn't look as good. It's a quarterback who, when he feels pressure, does not feel confident in his ability to either step up or escape while finding another receiver. Um, but this game, man, it's just so hard to judge when I look at this game because at half, I think he had 13 attempts. So at halftime, I mean, he had 13 attempts, and I think three of them were throw, passes thrown away. So, you know, as, as I watch it halftime, it's like, well, you know, he, it wasn't great. The passing game didn't look very good outside of that pass to Keegan Johnson, but it wasn't, they just weren't passing much. And then when they get into those late game throwing situations, it just, you know, he's trying to push the ball downfield. He's taking passes that maybe he normally wouldn't, you know, it was one of those things. It's like, okay, underneath, underneath and the go downfield interception. I mean, it happened two or three times late. The second he tried to push it downfield, um, where Purdue was just sitting back with their corners and safeties, it was intercepted. So, I mean, I just feel like we have a clear vision of what he does well. And I, I tracked it early. I have to find it back in my notes. But I think he got hit six times in this game. And I would consider probably 16 or 18 times he was legitimately pressured and his read and his delivery and things were altered. So... This was just a breakdown in the passing game in so many ways from, you know, his performance, from the offensive line performance, and from, you know, some play design in terms of too many guys getting horizontal, as you said, some of those spacing routes where it's just, it was curls and ins or outs. And, you know, when they did try to go for a big play or two, it usually got disrupted by defensive pressure. And there were times where they hit a play and they they looked for something downfield. They wanted Reganey on a deep cross once. And, you know, within by the time Petrus turned his head from play action to look downfield, uh, he had Karloftis bearing down on him. He had to just roll out and throw it away. So, you know, we know what he does well. We know what he doesn't do as well. And I think it's so polarizing because it's just glaring both directions. Yeah, and you know, he talked about how he got pressured out, you know, the wazoo in this game. I mean, it felt like every single time he had there was a long developing play where he wasn't just taking a three step drop or immediate five step drop hitting his first progression, the pocket would be collapsing. And a lot of people don't count um, pressures as just the pocket being collapsed abnormally. Um, it's usually kind of when a, a defender has at least a decent angle, like straight line direct look at maybe getting a hit on the quarterback. But when you look at some of the push that the defensive line was getting on the on the passing on the pocket in this game, you know, when uh, when your offensive line's back is barreling in on you, that's essentially the same thing sometimes as far as just being able to step into a throw. Sometimes you have to reset your feet to even deliver a ball at times and then all of a sudden, you know, that progression, that timing on that route is thrown off just by that little thing. And that happens so often at left tackle and right tackle and right guard and left guard in this game. Aside from all of the direct line pressure when a guy just got beat. And, you know, we have to come to grips with 
who Spencer Peters is as as a quarterback right now, right? Like we kind of already know that we're so far into his career and so far in quotations, but we are pretty substantially far in that we kind of know what he's capable of, who he is, and what he what he can potentially become. And I I you know I'm a Spencer Peters guy. I believe in his ability. I think he can win games in college football and even get a look at the pros one day. But he's not going to be the the playmaking savior um, as far as the passing game goes for Iowa. I mean, let's just get real. When you and hmm, I'll frame it like this. All right, I always say this. Use this argument um, as far as just differentiating quarterbacks at the NFL level um, because all quarterbacks are different, but. They all the great ones, the guys that really differentiate themselves at the NFL level, you know, the peak of all football, they have these certain things in common. You know, when you look at an Aaron Rodgers or Russell Wilson or Patrick Mahomes, um, Kyler Murray, Tom Brady, Lamar Jackson, Matthew Stafford, those guys have a variety of different ways that they win, right? You have some athletes in there, Lamar, Kyler, um, Aaron Rodgers, who's a great athlete, Russell Wilson. Um, Tom Brady, not so much, but what they do is they slow down the game, you know, with everything barreling down on them, they find a way to create those little pockets of air in the pocket, build a little bit more time. And when the play goes out of structure, that's actually where they're best. A lot of the times the out of structure plays aren't the the great plays that you see on a Sunday or in the Super Bowl or anything like that. It's the plays like the Eli Manning play in the Super Bowl to David Tyree, where He's looking for a quick slant. He's looking at he's looking at an underneath route, and then all of a sudden he gets hit out the right tackle spot, runs out of the pocket. Eli Manning of all people, slow Eli Manning, and gets out of the pocket, buys a little bit more time, settles under his feet, and throws up to a man to man coverage situation. And what does everybody remember? Oh, Eli Manning made a great throw, but everybody ignores the process on how that throw even came to be, right? And with Spencer Petrus. You kind of have to take who he is. And who he is is a guy with a big arm who can open up your playbook in a lot of different ways. Okay, his big arm allows for spacing in the running game. It allows for spacing in the passing game for receivers that really struggle to generate their own separation on just matchups when they're man-on-man or they're getting stacked. A lot of these guys aren't super athletes at ride receiver. And um, maybe that you can point to utilization and what routes they're being asked to run. Uh, a lot of these are stop routes or curl routes or out routes or in routes. There's not a lot of over routes being run except for tight ends. And the tight ends, you know, we always talk about how great of a route runner Sam Laporta is and how TJ Hawkins is a great route runner and Noah fan and all these other guys throughout the years. But you have to take Spencer Peters as a guy who, and you know, this game aside, usually makes the right decision in structure, has a good pocket presence knows where pressures are coming from um can read safety play can read underneath linebacker play can make strong throws has good enough general accuracy and precision to be a above average starter at the college football level but you know you have to temper your expectations as far as what he can become because he'll never be a guy that i think can slow down the game the way that those guys can, because for some reason, that's just a trait that some people have. And that's just a thing that he's always going to struggle with. I think. Those are great points in terms of like, like you said, he's making those reads, he's making the throw, but, and this is, let's be 
honest too. Like this is the hardest thing for any quarterback. You named, hey, what are these guys? The, so the best players in the NFL, the best quarterbacks in the NFL, they do this. This is what differentiates them from even good NFL players. So now we're talking about a college player. Like he's not going to be great at it. The hope is that he can get a little bit better with it. And I also thought, you know, a couple games ago, they gave him some of those, you know, wide receiver quick screens or little passes to just get some rhythm, some of those quick things. And I thought this would be a great game with Luke Lachey out, you know, so you, I didn't think, okay, you don't have to run as much two tight end personnel. You know, maybe you can get some of those wide receivers spaced out a little bit, some quick throws, get the offense in rhythm, get him making quick reads and quick decisions and forcing Purdue to tackle in space. And they just did so little of that. And, you know, I thought that or some screen game with the running back to try to slow that edge rush, that hard edge rush. And we just didn't see any of that. Now, part of it was time and score. Um, part of it was maybe they were expecting the start of this game to go so much different. So your game planning and your planning is, you know, your heavy run game with some deep shots. And well, you don't, you know, play action's not going to matter when you're down by 10 points with four minutes left. Like it's just not going to be nearly as effective or 17 points even worse. So just nothing was able to generate and my biggest disappointment thinking back was I thought this was going to be a great chance to get some of those guys in space with quick throws, get Petrus feeling good about what he was doing. And that just never materialized for a variety of reasons. Yeah. And you know, the details we're talking about right now of what Petrus kind of does well in terms of playing within the structure and sort of having good enough accuracy to sort of make these throws. And we see these throws, we bring them up on the podcast every single week, right? That's only about 60% of the passing plays. The other 40% are plays where, you know, he's operating out of structure. And we always say, actually, you know what? Let's talk about it a little bit. We always talk about out of structure. We keep saying that. And I, I don't want to come off as, you know, being jargon heavy. That's not really the point of this podcast, right? That we're not entitled or we're not, we're not like these, I don't know, what do you want to call it? Douchey people like they're just throwing terms at you and hoping you look them up one day or you just kind of accept them as whatever out of structure can mean a, a bunch of different things. You know, it, it can mean how do you react when a defensive lineman bursts through the line um, in sort of a timely fashion that you're not expecting. Right. It can also be, you know, if, if an offensive lineman gets barreled back in you or you're having to throw on the run, how good are you throwing off platform in a non-traditional sense? You don't have your original kind of pass set, you know, maybe, you have to throw on the run a little bit. Maybe you don't, you're kind of on your toes a little bit trying to get a pass underneath. It also comes in the sense of, you know, if you don't recognize a blitz pressure pre-snap and all of a sudden it's coming at you post-snap, how to react? Do you go to your hot route? It can be as simple as just checking down at a structure. You know what I mean? It just coming off your progressions and making the right decisions in that sense. And then you also have the plays that I think really kill Petrus. And that's the place where he does get out of the pocket because he's not a bad athlete by any stretch of the imagination. He can move a little bit. But when he gets out of the pocket, he never looks to reset the pocket outside when he's sort of isolated, right? He just kind of keeps drifting towards the sideline. And when he drifts towards the sideline, 
corners come off the receivers and, and those underneath coverages, the linebackers or the DNs fall out to the flat and he just kind of tails off and he's running away and limiting his windows to throw to and limiting the amount of time that he can potentially have to have his players sort of do scramble drill, play a little backyard bullshit. You know, what happens when you, you're playing uh, turkey game football on Thanksgiving with your family and, you know, you have like the, the way it's like the five apple, 10 apple, whatever it is. And your receivers aren't really running traditional routes. They're just trying to get open against your family. That's the same thing sometimes in scramble drill. You know, one of my favorite quotes was, um, from, and I'm a Steelers fan, it was about from Ben Roethlisberger on a radio show years ago when Antonio Brown was a Steeler. Um, a lot of the big plays, Big Ben brought this up. He's just like, I've never played with a receiver who just knew how to read my mind once the play broke down and just get open on a scramble situation when everything's crazy. Uh, I'm rolling out of the pocket. I'm running away from these scary defensive linemen who are trying to kill me. And he just made it slow down and make it so easy and get that separation. Spencer Peters doesn't even give his receivers a chance in that situation because I don't want to, I want to brand this nickname, but panic Pete. I mean, he kind of does panic a little bit out of structure and he seems so frantic. And he's just, there's so many times where I'm just like, ah, aggravated at my computer screen or my TV screen, just saying, slow down. Nobody's behind you. Trust your offensive lineman to pick up those cleanup blocks once you get out of the pocket. You know, it's not the end of the world. Buy yourself that two or three more seconds so that one of your quick guys, like an Arlen Bruce, Keegan Johnson, Tyrone Tracy, uh, literally that's all why I, why I was wide receivers. They're all just quick guys um, without the physical imposingness other than the tight ends. Just let them try to do some backyard bullshit and get open. It, it really comes down to a lot of those plays. If you can do that three or four times a game, I mean, that changes the outlook of Iowa's offense a ton. Yeah, just if they can pick up one to two extra first downs a game and just keep those drives going and get some extra points. And your point about drifting was so good because he does just drift to that sideline. And then what's the only option to throw? It's got to be just that hard sideline guy sliding out of bounds or guy trying to tiptoe. You limit basically anybody that's on the left side of the field is never going to get to that sideline. So as you said, clear the pocket you know you're out of the pocket now trust if you need to give a little peek back to see what's going on that's fine but as you said just slow it down make your read and then you know you can always throw it away but it's kind of like i'm looking looking i'm gonna throw it away i'm just it's like throw it away oh somebody might be open instead of do i have anybody do i have anybody oh pressure's coming now i can throw it away if that's the if that's the best option. And sometimes that is the best option, but you know, to drift and drift and drift and just force yourself into that sideline isn't going to be beneficial. And in those situations, you know, he's not a threat to run, which is not the end of the world. You know, it'd be great if he were a threat to run in that situation, but he's not. So if you're not going to run, just try to give yourself as much time and give those receivers enough time to hope to get open. Um, because you never know what's going to happen in those situations as long as you make a decision. As long as you're not trying to throw back across your body to the middle of the field, give those guys time to work the sideline. Yeah, and you know we just kind of talked about it. When you drift towards the sideline, what does that mean? You're throwing that hard ball to the sideline and sort of that your your receivers are basically flooding towards your, your momentum. And 
we're already talking about Spencer Petras as a guy who struggles to throw off platform. So now you're mixing in all of these dangerous aspects and making it even more difficult on yourself where if you do reset and just give yourself instead of drifting to the sideline, take those two seconds that when you're drifting, just reset the pocket and maybe get hit from the backside. But at least you're stable and in your best position to throw the ball. And we've seen it from Petrus. He has at times very good placement and he's already way um, beyond the years of Stanley when we saw Stanley in college as far as placement goes. I mean, some of the throws he makes, we never saw from Stanley unless it was just like sort of a flash in the pan once per game kind of thing. Yeah, so it's a matter of getting those plays and coupling that with how Iowa is going to use their receivers in their tight ends. And we got to hear from the coordinators this week. And, you know, not surprising, we hear them talk about, we've got to get Keegan Johnson more involved. You know, Arlen Bruce is doing a good job. We've got to find ways to get them the ball. But if they're going to be, you know, and I'm not going to worry about their play count right now, but it has to be within the flow of the game. So when they're in there, you know, it's not like, well, it's a play design one thing for this guy. Because they had that during this game. You know, Iowa's second possession started with, they tried to throw a downfield like fade route to Johnson and it was well covered. So when they're in there, it's, it's not a force feed, but you've got to find ways to get those guys moving in and moving upfield. That was so nice. One thing that stood out with that slant route is how many times have we watched an Iowa player catch it and they're completely horizontal to the line of scrimmage. So any movement after the catch is moving sideways. Like he caught it. He was at least going somewhat upfield even though he broke it off horizontally, it gave him that momentum and forced the defense to react. And if we can get some of those players like Johnson, you know, in those situations, or even somebody like Charlie Jones, who we see it on kick and punt returns, is really good in short space. Get them going, you know, vertical a little bit in space, and I think it just gives the passing game a chance to make one more explosive play a game. And that's, that might be all they need to beat a team like Wisconsin or Minnesota or Northwestern. Just like one or two extra explosive plays in a game. Yeah. And one of the things that I was in, you know, we've talked about how we kind of like Brian's game planning, his play sequencing at times, and also his, his creativity to implement things that are just sort of unexpected and super, super well-timed at times. I mean, that throwback against Penn State, that really had everything that Iowa was setting up the entire game, perfectly well-timed play call, and then it resulted in the biggest touchdown of the game in a game-changing play. But one of the things we don't see from Iowa's offense that we see from, and obviously I don't want to compare this offense to New England's offense at the Patriots, but in a lot of the same ways, they like the Patriots do, they rely on the shallow, shallow cross, high-low reads with overouts by the tight end to sort of create those... Um, linebacker depths to open up the shallow cross and then maybe create those yards after the catch. That's what New England Patriots have made a staple for years. But one of the things that New England Patriots do so often that Iowa just doesn't do enough is manufacture separation on rub routes and and sort of almost bend the rules a bit in that regard in terms of just sort of creating that off the line of scrimmage you know, immediate separation on like a go or something like that. Get the momentum going because yeah, you do have your receiving core is made up of a bunch of quick guys with good footwork who can generate separation on those underneath patterns. And that's what we see. 
I mean, we see him get open on stop routes and on these quick outs and on these underneath patterns and all these things. But what we don't see is sort of manufacturing downfield separation. Like, you know, how many times outside of the Colorado State game have we seen the scissors route concept be exercised? You know, the amount of times that teams are running cover one or cover two even against Iowa is staggering. It's almost all the time. So, like, if, if a safety on the other team is triggering hard down to the run, run play action, maybe run a long developing play with downfield separation on a manufactured, you know, crossing pattern down the field, and then just trust that Spencer Petrus is going to read that the safety or the, the outbreaking player, the outbreaking defender right and then make the right throw on the decision to at least throw the ball and give your receiver a chance to make a few uh, play down the field more than once or twice per game. You know, make it 10 times per game. If you're going to throw the ball 30 times, you should have enough shots over 20 yards to sort of make it that if you're only completing 25% of those, you're racking up a lot of impactful plays. And giving those guys to make plays, like you said, downfield um, with some manufactured space as you said that scissors route or if you can get some sort of stack route splits um or you know tight ends where they're crossing they're clearing out with a deep in underneath it you know you get that tight end going screaming down the seam and you bring in the flanker underneath on a deep in you creating that space in the zone between where the linebackers and safeties can get and those are the sort of plays that that petrus can throw too It, it fits into his wheelhouse as well making those sort of passes and getting those guys some space and getting those plays. You know, we're not talking about chucking it downfield, just throwing it up. We're talking about scheme design to get those plays and get those guys working into some one-on-one or, or catch them between his own. You know, I just don't feel like we see very many situations where a guy is kind of sitting in that zone and getting hit for a play. So anytime you can do that, that will open up the rest of the run game, you know, I, I thought last year, one thing Iowa did so well, really over the last two years, was run the ball effectively out of shotgun. You know, first, second down, getting those shotgun looks, being able to run the ball. And they're just not going to that this year. The, the shotgun game is pretty much just, it's our strict pass formation. And I think that's not helping this pass game either. The inability or unwillingness to say look we'll try to spread you out we'll run and maybe it's just they don't feel like the line can win five on four five on five but it's something I think that would at least give them an opportunity to get those linebackers stepping up and giving that extra depth between the linebackers and the safeties for some of those routes that you're talking about yeah and you know and if they can't win the offensive line can't win on some long developing plays listen let them lose because if you run that five times a long developing play five times and three times you get sacked, but two times you're able to deliver a good ball. You're taking those shots downfield and yeah, you're wasting one play. And I know Iowa hates falling behind the sticks, but take that on an early down, take it on a first down, a second down, because right now the shotgun is reserved for the passing game. I mean, they know it's coming anyway, if you can't run out, of the, run out of the shotgun, they already know you're passing the ball. You just kind of have to figure out ways to be able to make it pay um, on just those little glimpses. Because if you make a splash play at any point during the game out of shot, shotgun, 
all of a sudden that team's going to stop blitzing you as much because they're like, oh, well, listen, this is a tight game. If we get burnt like that even one more time on one of these plays out of the shotgun, it could be the it could be the ball game. And that's kind of where I think it comes down to of Iowa sort of compromising their identity on offense of trying to make a lot of third down to manageables and then just sort of having that explosive element that we've been talking about for two years now that we've been, since we've been doing this podcast, that explosive element added to this offense is of inevitability. If Iowa wants to compete on a national scale, it just is the best offensive coordinators try to avoid third down. I mean, if you're in third down, you want it to be manageable, but try to avoid third down, you know, and, and there were some situations where Iowa ran the ball really effectively. And there were situations where, you know, I love the the start of the game, not just the obviously a big play with Keegan Johnson, but, you know, they had shotgun, they had a trip set to the left. Keegan was one-on-one on the right side. That's a great situation. They follow it right up with a uh, shotgun jet sweep to Tyron Tracy. But then those sort of looks never really came back. You know, they didn't really get anything on the Tracy play, but I really like it. You just hit a big play. Now you're trying to get them something on the perimeter again. I think that's a great option for Iowa. I want to. I just want to see more of that. You know, those are the situations where, you know, Ivory Kelly Martin gets a touchdown. How they use some jet motion, incorporate more of those things. You, you know, I think it might have even been again a shotgun look. So here you go, shotgun. You get that run. You get some jet motion. Iowa has three receivers, maybe even four that are legitimate threats in that jet motion. You know, I think Tracy, Johnson, Bruce, and Jones are all threats in that motion. Utilize that because that's going to help hold those safeties' eyes. And then you get the run game. You can get some play action behind the safeties and things like that opening up instead of when they're shotguns, the linebackers are able to get 8 to 10 yards of depth and just keep things in front of them and and squash all those zone sets behind them. Yeah, and eventually I think I was going to have to be able to run out of the shotgun. Um, Traditionally, like on draws or inside runs, or even maybe like a a pitch out of the backfield um, to one of the sides with Tyler Goodson or Ivor Kelly Martin. Because what happens when a team does do that in the shotgun where they can't really run the ball out of it in a traditional sense unless there's motion, Defenses only key in on motion, and then they really key in hard on their zones. What happens when Iowa lines up under center and they line up with 22 personnel, with which means two, uh, like a fullback, a running back, two tight ends. Usually Iowa does that look from um, a two tight end tight. So that's going to be two tight ends lined up in line with the offensive line. The, the amount of times, and Thad will attest to this, that throughout this season, a safety has come, has triggered down so fast it's absurd they're not even looking for the pass after time because they're like well let's dare them to try to throw it over the top of me i mean it only happens like two times per game with this offense like we're not going to get burned with this running game anymore and every single time when that happens say that safety fills i was offensive line and their blocking responsibilities aren't accounting for safeties unless they're engineering something like a pin and pull or um, getting a guard or center out in space, then they're looking at the second and third level players. But more often than not, when you're setting blocking assignments pre-snap, you're just looking at the guys in the box. But what happens when you have a predictable, or at least not predictable, but you have a defense that's keying in so hard on the run 
these safeties are triggering so fast on the running game that they become immediately an additional linebacker and Iowa becomes outnumbered no matter what. So Iowa has to mix in their variety. Um, and I think it starts with shotgun being able to run out of the shotgun because they have to do certain things. They have to sort of mix up whether it's a run or pass with the same kind of looks that they've sort of fallen into the trend of this being only a run or this being only a pass. They've got to mix that up to save their offense from being just um, too predictable or too tendency heavy. It's also going to give Petrus just time, you know, pre-snap to really examine defensive position. It's, you know, quarterbacks will always say it. You just get a better look from shotgun. That's why teams, you know, you're going to get a little bit more time traditionally in the pocket. You have a better view of the defense to start. So some of those situations to alleviate some of the things he wants, you know, that might be a shortcoming can help. Now, that said, Iowa is still a physical team. You're not going to abandon what they do with their fullback. They're not going to abandon what they do with some of their run games, but it can help supplement. You know, I think back to last year when they would get a shotgun with Makai Sargent and Tyler Goodson in the backfield. And you had some options where they could sprint one out of the backfield to a sideline. You could run. Um, I, I fully trust Goodson and Ivory Kelly Martin to make good decisions with their pass protections and things like that as well. So getting those guys and just keeping the defense thinking is going to be helpful. And I'm really interested to see, you know, these final five games. What does this offense look like after the bye week? Like you've had time to examine seven games. And I'm going to be honest, I did not see this team being six and one at this point. So first of all, like you're in it, you're still at a good spot. All of your goals really are still there in terms of, I'm sure team goal number one is always win the West and then it's win a big 10 championship. So those things are still in place. You can still do those. So what sort of little keys change? And I think it starts with a little bit more of the shotgun run game, getting Ivory Kelly Martin and Tyler Goodson involved in that it's getting Keegan Johnson, especially more involved in different things. And from there, just, putting Petrus in the position like he was in those first six games where he's managing the game, making a couple big throws and avoiding any of the really bad throws because this game, you know, a couple interceptions were just really poor throws. I thought the one to Mia men um, down the seam was one of those that we just saw a young player not make his read quite right. So earlier in the game, Iowa ran, a seam route, hit a nice play to Laporta, worked down the seam. And once Petrus saw him, you could see Laporta start to bend his route just inside of the safety. Late in the game, they have, um, with Luke Lachey out, Josiah Miaman, a young player, you know, might end up being a really good player, but he takes his seam route directly down the hash. And what does the safety do? Steps right in front of him for the interception. But that's one that as he's working, he needs to get that. And that's an experience thing. You got to bend that thing just inside of the safety. So if he's going to make a play on it, it's going to be pass interference. And it's so it's those sort of things. It's just like, oh, it's a good, you know, pretty good route, pretty good play. The ball is reasonable. But just making those slight adjustments um, go from an interception instead of, you know, it was an interception and could have been an 18, 20 yard gain. 
Yeah, and you know, we talked about it in previous podcasts with receivers being subtle, adding subtlety to their routes, and that sort of comes with growing confidence. And, you know, moving on a football field is just different. You know what I mean? Like, you can move in practice um, in non-game action, and even and, and even if like a, a, it's a practice-setting kind of game atmosphere, it's not the same as when you're stepping against an opponent that you've never seen before, and the results and what you do and how you run your route matter. And getting open, like we just kind of talked about it and sort of the scramble drill kind of aspect of it, you, a traditional route, you know, a lot of times like evaluators back in the day, like in the early stages of, I guess, if you want to call it NFL draft Twitter or football analysis Twitter, they would say that a good route runner, if you could, you would draw, if you drew like a pencil, um, like in a, like with a, um, a straight line tool and just sort of drew a post route and it would be as sharp like that. And the receiver on the TV screen, if they were a good route runner would run, run that route directly in line with that pencil. You know, it'd be a perfect little, the receiver basically run an outline of the perfect ideal route. Nowadays with all these over routes in college football and not really being called a post or not being really called a deep in or, or, or a deep dig. There's a lot of over routes where receivers just asked and, to really just get open or on these seam patterns, split the safety, read the safeties, read the defender that's covering you and make an, an adjustment to your route in order to create the most separation without going too far off of that ideal line so that you're not, you know, uh, disrupting other routes or other progressions. But you need to still get open. And that a lot of that gets put on the receiver and the quarterback just being able to be on the, at least on the somewhat of the same page to put it where it needs to be in the general direction um, to complete a play. And yeah, I, I agree on that last interception where it was kind of like the defender dove to the ground and it kind of looked like uh, just a total errant pass from Petrus. That was more so on Miaman just not being totally comfortable and in, in what to do, sort of just running the pencil. You know what I mean? Just running that outline right to a T. And once he gets more confidence under him, once he gets more confidence in his movement, just moving in a game-like setting against an actual opponent, those things will come. I mean, Laporta wasn't there when he was first doing it. Um, Charlie Jones, probably the same thing. I don't know. I didn't really follow him at Buffalo. But Nico Regani, you know, any, any receiver you watch at Iowa over the years, they start out like that. It's sort of like a deer in the headlights. Like, was that me? Was that my fault? We see it all the time with these young players that step on the field for Iowa. Um, that, you know, they lead to an incompletion or interception. It looks like a bad throw from the quarterback. They always look back and they point at myself like, is it my, is it my fault? Like, was that on me? That's one of those plays that, you know, it's unfortunate that ended up in interception, but that that's what it was. Yeah, and it's not a play, you know, that totally defines the game, but you just think of it's just those little things. You know, this offense is not going to be one that's going to put up 40 points a game, you know, tr- on a standard week-to-week basis. But it's those little things. It's like, man, I always just feel like you walk away and there's, well, a little play here and a little play there that if it's made, you know, we see that big difference. All of a sudden, that's an extra seven points. That's an extra three points early in the game. And we know if this team gets a lead, they can sit on the ball effectively with a couple big plays and the defense can really feast. And when they're fighting from behind the whole game, neither of those things were happening. Yeah, and, you know, we're approaching, I think, about an hour in this podcast, if we haven't already surpassed it. 
And yeah, this is definitely an offensive centric podcast just because that's really where the, the spotlight is being shown um, after this loss. And yeah, there's always fingers being pointed after an Iowa loss. You know, we're used to it now for all the years that we've been covering Iowa football. Um, and even when we were just straight line fans or um, analysts or whatever you want to call it um, way back in the day. But, you know, it, the defense, we can talk about them. At, we'll probably talk about them more on next week's podcast when we're previewing Wisconsin. But this week was really, it was a podcast that we really need to dedicate to the offense because this is sort of the going into the bye week. This is the area of the team that really needs to be fixed. You know, there's, there's a lot of positives and there's a lot of critiques that we could levy against the Iowa defense in this game. I mean, Aiden O'Connell tore him up for the second straight year. David Bell um, tore him up for the second straight year. They didn't even have uh, Xander Horvath who, you know, is a, is a tank bowling ball who wrecked Iowa last year. Um, they handled the running game pretty well in this game against Purdue, but it was those third downs that you brought up at the beginning of the podcast, Dad. I mean, it just felt like when Iowa potentially could generate a spark and get off the field, they just couldn't. Yeah, I mean, Purdue offensively made all of those third downs and made it just look so easy. You know, and it, as we said, it wasn't always scheme. It was guys making plays. And Iowa defense, you know, we could talk about it. They did not look very good. but you know, there'd be like two really good defensive plays and then they'd give something up. And then even when they did play good defense, they got two pass interference on third down calls that were really just unfortunate. I mean, the one where Jack Campbell runs into David Bell, David Bell just jumped in front of him. He goes from inside of Hankins and just literally jumps outside so that Campbell hits him. And the one with Justin Jacobs, he's in great position and they get, they actually got pressure on O'Connell. He steps out of it, chucks it, throws it so bad that the tight end has to jump into Jacobs and it's pass interference. And I'm not saying it's the wrong call because that is pass interference, but it's really unfortunate because Jacobs was in good coverage position. He was on the hip. He was in a great spot. He was going to make a perfect throw, have to beat him. And instead it was a perfectly bad throw that beat him because of the play act or pass interference. So even when the defense did seem to do something well, it didn't work out. I think there were three or four tipped passes at different stages. None of those got intercepted. And you can say, well, all the interceptions are not sustainable, but I think this was the first time in like 16 or 17 games that Iowa didn't get at least one interception. So yeah, is three or four a game sustainable? No, but getting zero is much more unlikely than this team getting one or two. So to not be able to generate that, to watch you know, David Bell make play after play to watch a jump ball, get caught to watch those play um, pass interference calls. The defense obviously has some things to clean up. I think everybody, I can speak for almost everybody. We trust Phil Parker. We trust this defense to do that and they'll make some plays, but, but it was just like everything in this game went wrong. And I, in my rewatch, I said, you know, on O'Connell's touchdown run, when he on third down, he pulls the ball down and Jack Kerner has him dead to rights. And what does he do? The umpire steps right in front of him. And now he has to redirect, and now it's a touchdown. And I should have known right at that point, like, okay, this is just not going to go Iowa's way because they just got in their way. That was a dead to rights, going to be a field goal. You know, and instead it's a touchdown, and, and Purdue never trailed from then on. Yeah, and also like a lot of their big passing plays, specifically to David Bell, 
there was some good coverage by Terry Roberts and uh, Matt Hankins. Like they were tight to the hip. Um, they made a contested catch situation where they 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 played the catch point pretty well. And you have to tip your cap to a guy that I kind of shit on last week in the preview, Aiden O'Connell. You know, Jack Plummer is a guy that I kind of, or is it Jake Plummer? No, not Jake. Jake Plummer is the Denver, former Denver Bronco. But Jack Plummer was a guy that I thought was a clearly better passer from just a stereotypical um, perspective that Purdue kind of likes to run in sort of this just distributor of the football, at least in like has better velocity. But Aiden O'Connell was dropping in some really pretty touch passes with really nice precision that was just beating good coverage. And sometimes you'll get in those kind of ball games where you will be in good coverage and there's just not much you else you can do. Because a guy like David Bell, throughout his route, and a lot of time we don't get to see it because the shitty broadcast angle, but he has a lot of subtlety to sort of get him in the perfect position to use his body to shield off a defender. And if the ball is put in that prime spot where he's able to shift his body in a certain position, shield off the defender, and then the ball is put in the, the far, furthest away position away from that defender and in a catchable spot, there are things as there are things that you can call uncatchable passes. You know, we see them more in the NFL with those kinds of quarterbacks, but every dog has its day, you know, in, in college football. Even the the quarterbacks who aren't going to be doing great things in, at the NFL level, potentially, they they can still make precise passes. And if they get in a groove, you know, these guys are talented football players. They're they're power five football players and Purdue's not just some scrub school on offense, no matter what um, a lot of these uh, people on Twitter <laughs> want you to believe. Yeah, I mean, he came into the game with four interceptions or four touchdowns, five interceptions, and he left. I mean... He looked like Aaron Rodgers on some of those. And what really impressed me was the times when Iowa maybe got a free rusher or got some pressure. And he he delivered several passes like way before the receivers coming out of his break and just throwing it to an open spot. And it doesn't matter how good your coverage is. If that pass is that on target, it's going to work. A good offense is just going to beat the defense on those plays. And he consistently put the ball in the perfect spot. So it's one of those games, you, okay, you have to tip the cap to him because he was fantastic and um, looked looked the best I've ever seen him. And, and it was him. It wasn't like Iowa was playing awful to let him do that. He was making plays, and his receivers were making plays for him as well, whether it was David Bell or, or anybody else getting downfield and hitting on some of those deep plays. Yeah, and, you know, to quote Nick Saban, you know, one of the greatest, most accomplished coaches in all the – and all of football, regardless of level, and a guy who is a former secondary guru as far as the NFL is concerned and just generating um, generations of talented defensive coordinators and uh, secondary coaches. He said last year in a statement that the coaching community kind of, you know, took as sort of an indicator of the change, I guess sort of a solidifying changing of the times and um, an acknowledgement that even defensive coordinators know this to be a fact in today's game. Good off or good defense doesn't beat good offense anymore. You know, if you have a great offense, you're going to beat a great defense. You know, a defense wins championships is a great moniker to have. But look at all these teams that are winning the college football playoff or even in the college football playoff. Yeah, they have good enough defense, but what's really carrying those teams is great offense. 
Um, and we see it all the time now. And it's something that Iowa sort of has to accept that, yeah, they will have games like this if they can't score points because even a great defense like Iowa's defense, and yeah, they're down Riley Moss, but I don't think that really would have changed much in this game. You know, even with a great defense like Iowa, they're going to have times where great offense puts up points on them, and Iowa has to score along with an opponent, and Iowa couldn't score in this game, and that's sort of the story of it. And all those things said, Purdue only ended up with 24 points. So it's yeah. not like it's not like they put up 35. It's not like they put up 40. They ended up with 24. So even though Iowa allowed all those big plays, David Bell torched them, O'Connell looked fantastic, like all of those things we mentioned, it still wasn't like Iowa, if they score a couple times early when they were moving the ball, um, or even maybe one of those late when they get good field position off of a kick or punt return, it's not like they couldn't have been in this game and made it, I don't want to say competitive, it's not that it wasn't a competitive game, but just made it so it is a one-score game late, where it is you know a situation where Iowa has the ball with a chance to either win or send it into overtime, and it just never happened. Yeah, and you know, one of the things that I also kind of took away from this game I thought was kind of interesting, and something that I think has been a gripe with me as far as Brian's concerned for the past two seasons now that I think he's made serious strides as a coordinator and as a play caller in a lot of different aspects. But when it comes down uh, comes down to um, a key third down or a play near the red zone, near the touch, like near like in first and goal from the five, like five or seven or something like that, or third and goal from that kind of down in distance. It felt like in this game, Purdue always had a play call that they were super confident in in those situations. And it was usually a manufactured rub or it was some kind of double move by David Bell. It was a play that they felt that this was going to win 60 or 70 percent of the time. And they converted those key situations when they had to to put points on the board or to convert a third down, a key third down to keep a drive alive in in a close section of the game. And for Iowa, when they got into a key third down, when they were trailing or when they had to sell for that field goal at the very end, it didn't feel like they were doing anything that was creative in those spots to sort of this is a play. This is our winning play. This is the play that we just trust more than anything. It kind of felt like they were just going with what was working just to get down there in the first place. Yeah, I've, I feel like offensively, really the only time they feel like it's a third down and they've got the winning play is when they've got Goodson on that Texas route out of the backfield. When they can see its main coverage and they can see they're going to have Goodson on a linebacker and it's kind of safeties is vacated. That's the one time where I feel like the play happens like, okay, they, you know, they had that in the call. If they got a certain look, they're going to it right away. Like we know that we're expecting this defense. We're going to get this look. We're going to make a play because outside of that, you know, it, there doesn't seem to be anything like, like you said, some of those pivot routes or some of those different things, some of those sluggo, those double moves that, that Purdue just had like, look, we're, we dialed this up. We have confidence in this. This is our key play. We've got this schemed the way we're going to do it. And we don't even have to look to something else. And then, of course, when Iowa does kind of slow that down, they hit whatever Iowa did give them because Iowa wasn't able to get a lot of pressure. They had to bring some blitzes. They had to try to do something to force the issue. And once that happened, again, credit to Purdue. Anything that Iowa threw at them, they handled and made it look pretty easy. 
Yeah, they, you know, we talk about poise with Spencer Petras. Well, Aiden O'Connell, I, there, there's something to the walk-on demeanor, right? When you, when you have that chip on your shoulder and you emerge as a starter, especially at that key position where there's there's only one guy, um, he just seems so poised out there. And when the when the play broke down and it came out of structure in a lot of um scenarios, he made a calm decision and and tucked it and ran or made a play out of structure and made a play. Like Spencer Petras should like the guy with coaching staff needs to help Spencer Petras along, and in the areas that you know he can improve on out of structure because yeah I do think he's going to be an anxious kind of guy at quarterback throughout his entire duration as a college football player. I don't see that changing, but you, I think you can coach him up at least from the aspect of stepping up in the pocket and just growing that habit of just doing it. Even if it doesn't feel comfortable, do it. Just trust that your offensive line. Eventually, once you start doing that more and more in games and the pocket collapses around you, but you step up at a weird angle, maybe, or you step up vertically, it doesn't really matter. Once you get sort of comfortable with that pocket inside the pocket movement, I think that's going to ease a lot of your concerns, especially if those plays start working. Like even if you get hit, you're looking at the result. If you're Spencer Petras, like, listen, I got smoked from my backside. Didn't see it coming, but I'm not as anxious as I was anymore because one, it didn't really hurt. And two, I completed a ball down the field. That was a key for our team. And I think it's also going to be helpful if this offense can, can, you know, early in downs, set up something to help try to slow the pass rush down. Because if they don't feel confident with their tackles right now in some of those situations, or even the interior play, you know, especially against a gifted pass rusher like Karloftis, you know, first down, look at that running back screen game. You know, that doesn't have to be a third down and long tempo call where you're trying to catch them off guard. Like first down, go to it or go to some little quick flare out or something that is going to get those pass rushers who want to, you know, step on the pedal early on, you know, give them something to think about. Maybe it's bringing a guy in motion and just cracking one of them to try to get some of that. So, so all of a sudden those DNs, you know, have to change their mentality that I'm not going to get one-on-one with a tackle and, you know, something like that. I'd love to see him go to that running back screen game early or frequently. Like, why not try to get Goodson the ball three times on that play? Now, maybe it hits, maybe it doesn't, but it's going to slow the pass rush. It's going to get one of your best players involved. I think it's things like that that can, you know, those don't have to be big plays, but it's their cumulative effect of how they change your offense. And it's a safe play. Like at worst, you chuck it at the feet and it's second down and 10. How many times have we seen a uh, delayed drag screen fail this season? Never, right? It always feels like it's at least going for three or four yards, and sometimes it's just a 10-yard gain, whether it's Arlen Bruce, Tyrone Tracy. Um, I'm trying to remember if there's anybody else that has been a benefactor of one of those. I don't. I think that's probably the list right there. But every single time, no matter who they run it with, it's such an effective play call because I was so, you know, they can sell it off of outside zone and they can get their athletic right side of their offensive line. Cause usually it's to the right side. They can get their athletic right side of the offensive line and Tyler Linderbaum and Connor Colby out in space. And I, I, I feel like a lot of more implementation of that outside of just the first drive of the game where they're trying to get rhythm and trying to get um, sort of the script plays out of the way. If you can implement that throughout the game, 
I think it's going to force defenses to really stop blitzing you the way that um, teams are blitzing Iowa, or at least stop the trigger down, triggering down as fast as they are against the run. Um, just mixing in those sorts of things, I think, could be such a big lift for this offense. And right now, what this team tries to do in those situations, we see a lot of those, you know, crossers. You mentioned the shallow cross, but again, that's a slow developing play. You're relying on that offensive line to hold up is that happens. So what are some of those situations, you know, can you go to some of those pivot routes? Can you get, you know, some of those little rubs and get that early action to get the offense, you know, just picking up a couple yards at a time. And then one of them's going to break at some point. So I think that's the thing that I'm hoping to see. And obviously we'll talk about it next week, the task that comes with playing a Wisconsin defense, but those are some of the things can give the offense a little bit of momentum and then if your best players have the ball, at some point, they're going to make a play. Yeah, and, you know, this game was tough. The rewatch was tough. Um, but we're going into a bye week, a much-needed bye week for not only the Iowa Hawkeyes, but I think for me and Thad as well. Um, man, it's been stressful. We've been trying to turn out all this content, and also it's just it's it's a bummer when you're – you know, you put in all this work for analysis-wise – and you're coming off a big emotional win against Penn State, and you just fall flat on your face at home against Purdue. Um, but listen, the season's not over. There's still plenty of games left. There's plenty of time for Iowa to bounce back and and still make the college football playoff, or at least make you know a, a serious bowl game and potentially win the Big Ten title. So, if you don't think that there's things left to play for for Iowa and that it's all doom and gloom and this team is doomed. Just remember back to smoking Iowa State and and uh, beating Penn State and, and uh, making all their fans cry. Um, it, the, the good old times, you know, two weeks ago, the good old times. There's a lot of teams in college football that would hope to be six and one, you know. So obviously that doesn't make what happened in this Purdue game fixed. You know, it's not well. You know, things are perfect because hey, Iowa at least we're six and one. Like that's not the case. But it is, okay, here's your bye week. It's a great chance to regroup. I mean, look at the turnaround Purdue had. You know, we didn't talk about that off their bye week. You know, what they looked like. They looked dead to water in some of those games. They looked, you know, just not like the same Purdue team that you expect. And then they have that bye week, um, and everything was perfect in their scheme, in their play against Iowa. So maybe Iowa has that where you come out of that bye week, you get some of those you know shots able to get back, a little healthier. Maybe we see Cody Ince. Maybe we see some of those young players that we've mentioned increase their role. Maybe you see one to two extra design plays for some of those key guys. You know, Tyler Goodson, get him, you know, kind of fresh and some of that. And now all of a sudden, you know, maybe that's the difference. You you go and win the next two games. And if you can get to eight and two or eight and one, excuse me, like now it's just all back open again, and it's easy to say, okay, the sky's falling, this Purdue, we lost to Purdue again, this and that, but the truth is, like, those things are going to happen. I mean, almost everybody in college football has a loss. You don't want it, but it's the, the reality. And outside of Georgia, everybody has some flaws. Like, Alabama doesn't have many either, but you're also looking at two teams that are always in the top five in recruiting. And so is a team like Clemson. They're always in the top five of recruiting, but they have tons of flaws. So 
while this Iowa team has some flaws, has some things that aren't, you know, in the right direction, those can be fixed and there's still a chance to have a really special season. Yeah, the team that won the uh the college football championship two years ago just fired their head coach. Um and you know, they would switch places with Iowa this second if they could. <laughs> it's I mean that just says it all, right? I this isn't the end of the world for Iowa. There's still plenty of time. Ohio State already has a loss. You know, Oregon has a loss. All these teams are or Alabama has a loss. Florida has several. <laughs> it's like all these teams that have all this exuberant amount of talent. They're not winning the same games that I was winning. Um, Iowa State would trade places with Iowa as well. So we can make a big list of teams and some pretty hefty names that would trade places with Iowa in a heartbeat right now. So that doesn't make the loss easier, but it's the honest truth as well. Yeah. And we're not even talking about just record. We're talking about team. You know, we're talking about the players who are actually making up the starting, you know, two deeps. Um, But yeah, um, unless you have anything left to add that, I'll let you pop in here just one last time. Um, We'll be wrapping up here um, in the next minute or so. Yeah, like the Hawkeyes, I'm looking forward to a, you know, a little bit quieter week. Um, But then there's a big one coming up. So I'm excited to start digging into that. I've really enjoyed this podcast for the first half of the season. And now we get our chance to be like the team and kind of regroup and, and figure our game plan going forward. And, and like the team, you know, our goal is to get a little bit better um, following the bye week as well. But uh, thanks to everybody for reaching out for different things. We've really appreciated it. We have a lot of fun um, and, you know, there are better days ahead for this Hawkeye football team. Couldn't have said it better myself. We're using that as the outro. Um, but with that said, We will see you all in a future podcast. Take it easy.